Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done, going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is January 26, 2016, and my guest is Adam Ozimek. He is an economist at Moody's Analytics, and he blogs at Forbes at Modeled Behavior. Adam, welcome to EconTalk. Thanks for having me, Russ. Our conversation today is something of a follow-up to the recent EconTalk episode with Noah Smith. And in the aftermath of that conversation, you wrote a piece, and the title was Can Economics Change Your Mind?, which was one of the topics that Noah and I had talked about And I found your take to be very provocative, and it helped me think more clearly about some of the issues that were raised in the Smith episode that I was either confused about or confused you, the listeners, about. So I wanted to follow up and go a little deeper. So summarize the argument that you made in your piece, and you asked for some responses from readers, and you got some interesting responses. So talk about the piece itself and what kind of response you got. Sure. So in the to answer the question of how empirical economics is or how ideological it is, I thought it would be useful to think about is evidence actually changing our minds? Because if, if it wasn't, that would be a really good sign that it was just ideology that was operating. And I sort of started with reflecting on myself and the areas where evidence, uh, empirical and especially, you know, regression analysis and the uh, more complex statistical stuff that you tend to be skeptical of and other skeptics tend to downplay uh, where where that's changed my mind. And one big example that came up for me, and this is, you know, I wrote about my article is the work by David Autor uh, and uh, Dorn and Hansen and others have done work on this on, on the effects of trade with China on the United States and then trade more broadly. This is an area where uh, I think along with a lot of economists, I thought that the costs of more trade exposure were going to be relatively temporary, relatively quick. The economy was going to reallocate. People were going to find new jobs and there would be winners and losers from trade, but that the costs would be dissipated relatively quickly in our economy, especially given how flexible and dynamic the U.S. labor markets are. But Dorn's work and Autor, Dorn, Autor, and Hansen, their work looked at uh, really good micro evidence of what's happened to areas that were more exposed to trade with China. And what they found was that adjustments have taken a long time and they've been much bigger than you might have expected, and especially compared to what economists were thinking in the 90s. And the evidence was good. I mean, they looked at. Um, supply shocks from China and how this their increase in trade has been relatively exogenous to U.S. demand side factors. And and so it was really um, sort of in the natural experiment vein in that it wasn't driven by U.S. specific factors. And they did very careful measurement and econometric techniques that that really tried to isolate that. And they found that what's happened is people that live in these areas that were exposed to trade have dropped out of the labor market. Um, they've gone on to government assistance programs 
and not just temporary ones, but more permanent ones like disability. And this has really made me think that the costs are actually much larger than we would have expected given the flexible U.S. labor markets. And, you know, that was a pretty big thing to change my mind about. And uh, I, I didn't do it lightly and didn't discard the theory lightly. But the empirical work was really it was really well done. And there was other evidence that followed it. It, it made it sort of hard to hard to ignore. So, so can, I, can I comment on yeah, that for ahead. a minute? I, and I, I apologize. I, I did not read that paper and I will look at it after this episode. Maybe write something about it at at Econ Talk on our website, but it, it's an interesting point, right? It's a, it's a subtle point you're making. And I, like you, I'm an advocate for free trade. I don't know if you're an advocate, but I also feel that in general trade, the response to trade in labor markets tends to be fairly quick in the United States, maybe not so much elsewhere, but our labor markets are more flexible. One way to deal with that evidence is to imagine that perhaps – You've overestimated the flexibility of U.S. labor markets, not so much the trade has – the nature of trade has changed or that you learned about the nature of trade. But did you wonder about the possibility that maybe labor markets in general, not just in response to trade, but other types of domestic change, economic changes uh, are not as responsive as maybe you thought or that policies have changed that, that have made them less responsive? Yeah, I think I think it does tell you something about U.S. labor markets in general, and that's sort of raised that question. But I don't think – uh, I don't think it, it's a call for um, pessimism that all changes in the economy are going to be more uh, costly. Uh, and a great issue to contrast this with is, is immigration, which is another issue where uh, economists have been relatively uh, positive about the U.S. labor market's ability to adjust to. Mm -hmm. And the best micro evidence over time has sort of confirmed this. And if you look at similar approaches that focus on what are the local labor market effects of immigration, they haven't been costly. They haven't taken a long time to adjust and worker, uh, native workers haven't been harmed by it. Of so not it's every, not, not really – Not everybody agrees with that. Uh, well, yeah, I, I do think that there's broad agreement that the local labor market effects have been relatively positive. I think that you find other people who say, well, you have to sort of take the general equilibrium into consideration and that some native workers are going to move and relocate to other areas. And they more so disagree that the total effect in the U.S., you can't look at local uh, estimates. You have to look at U.S. national estimates. And, you know, that's a debate to have. But I do think that that the the relatively strong consensus that the local labor market impacts haven't been haven't been very negative. Well, the reason I was thinking about it is that thinking about housing workers, construction workers, either in housing or, or just general types of construction. Uh, if you look at you know, the post Great Recession housing numbers and manufacturing, the manufacturing numbers are really they were hit. They've been being hit in the long term by tra trade with China and productivity and technological innovation that's made workers uh, lower the demand for workers. So manufacturers have been shrinking very steadily over time, and then the recession comes, that really hits it, that reinforces those, those secular trends. And at the same time, in the housing construction market, of course, we built a lot of houses in the first part of the 2000s, and then that just died. And so we had a huge number of workers who were out of work. And if you'd gone back, say, you know, to the early 90s, I think my crude estimate of the analysis in the post-Cold War situation where a lot of defense workers had to find new jobs, they did pretty – the market 
labor market worked pretty well. Didn't seem to work very well this last time. The, a lot of people dropped out. Um, we're not, I don't think, fully understanding of why. So I'm just, I raised the point uh, partly to preserve my own belief in trade, of course, my own bias uh, or prior. But I'm curious, I was sort of pushing you on that. Is that, is that, do you think about that at all? Yeah, absolutely. I think it, it, there's a really big question about the, the deeper parameters at work here and, and what it, what is it about um, this trade? Uh, was it just that it was large, you know, that it was geographically concentrated? Because um, like you said, yeah, the economy has reallocated in the past to different structural shocks and, and something, something about this, um, it, it's not adjusting very well. It might be the case that the effect is bigger here. I, I certainly think that the effect to trade is bigger than the effect to manufacturing and work from all tours also suggested that it's bigger than the effect of um, automation. So there's something, something about the, the effect of trade that's been, that's been bigger and it may just be because it's, it's larger and it's more concentrated, or it may be that it's because it happened in such a distinct um, sort of exogenous shock that it's just more easily identified uh, than the others. But I, I I tend to I tend to think that there's something unique about uh, the trade exposure to low trade exposure, especially to low skilled countries. That's had a bigger impact than uh, other labor market shocks that we've seen. But it to to make you feel better, which I think you should still feel good about trade, is that I, I remain as, as very strongly pro trade. Um, I think it, the benefits still outweigh the costs. And importantly, I think that the economic consensus there is, is still really strong. If you look at the University of Chicago's, they, they, they do a survey of economists and they still agree, you know, resounding consensus that, um, that free trade tends to benefit uh, average, the average person in the U.S. I don't, I don't think that that consensus is weakened. I just think we have to worry a little bit more about the adjustment costs and also think about what kind of policies we might do to respond because, um, you know, doing nothing is more costly than we thought, which lowers the cost of doing something. So I wanna, let's stick with trade for a minute, even though this is where I want to expect it to go because I think it's such an interesting issue. Um, yeah, you, you haven't dented my love of trade or belief that trade's good for people. Um, but I love the way you summarized that uh, University of Chicago survey response. You said there's a consensus that trade is still good for the average person. And I, why do we believe that? I believe that, but why? And there, there's some empirical evidence for it, right? There, there are studies that look across countries that have freer trade versus less free trade. Uh, but I would argue that most of the economists who believe in trade as a positive economic force for the average person have a theoretical construct in their mind that it's confirmed not by sophisticated evidence, but by what we might call casual evidence, what we might call uh, – it's not anecdotal. It's, it's that the things we observe in the world tend to confirm our overall worldview about the power of incentives, the power of competition, say – uh, the role of low prices, and which is just arithmetic, that it frees up income for people to buy more of other things. But we believe most of us do who are free traders that competition drives prices lower and that helps consumers and therefore the average person benefits even though some workers are going to be harmed by it. And I think that uh, belief is 
is very is very widespread among economists. But it's an interesting thing to think about why that is. It's not that somebody did an, uh, an experiment, although we, we could do one or we could imagine ones that would happen where a country would get cut off from trade as they are in an, an embargo or a war. Uh, but, of course, there's other stuff going on there. But I think most of us who like trade, who think it's good for America or good for the average person – uh, have some theoretical construct in mind that is supported not by real what we would call empirical or scientific evidence, but by what I would call casual evidence. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I do. I do agree with that broadly. There's there's a lot of you know general slow accumulation of historical experience. There's I think you can't dismiss the power of um, Ricardo's basic model of comparative advantage. I think those. Those remain very influential, but I, I think there is a role for empirical evidence here, and it's a role that's often neglected. And it's not just that evidence doesn't just show you what is true, but lack of evidence shows you what hasn't been disproved. So Explain. Could, you, could e- you could easily imagine a case where uh, the benefits to trade, there was detailed microeconomic evidence that it wasn't showing up that producers weren't actually lowering their prices and the prices weren't being passed on to consumers. Um, you know, that, uh, the, the set of goods available to consumers, you know, one of the big benefits of trade is variety, a variety of things that we can consume. You could imagine evidence that shows that wasn't increasing. And so one of the reasons that we still tell the story and we still believe that trade's beneficial is the absence of evidence disproving it. Right. But people who are skeptical about trade, and there are quite a few of them, some of them running for president these days. We're not going to get into that. But a lot of people in the public sphere, not just economists, there are economists who are skeptical about trade. But most economists, as you say, there's pretty much a consensus in favor of it. But there are a lot of smart people who are not part of that consensus who aren't economists. And they say they'll point out things like, well, in the 1880s, the United States was growing very quickly and we were very protectionist and that was really necessary. And that's probably good today for smaller countries. I disagree, but that's that's what they'll argue. They, They claim to have evidence. They'll try to show you correlations between lost jobs and trade deficits. They'll do microanalysis that each dollar of the trade deficit costs so many jobs and puts so many people out of work. And I I have, I believe, good arguments against against those positions. But I think it's fascinating how hard it is to really make the case. And I, by the way, would not rely on Ricardo at all, even though I wrote a book that tried to make Ricardo's intuition clearer. And I mean, the truth is Ricardo typically, not typically, Ricardo actually himself was talking about a two by two case, two countries, two goods. Uh, We live in an N country, N good world, lots of countries, lots of goods. You could argue those – a lot of people argue those assumptions don't hold anymore. It didn't really hold then. And so I just – you know, I think about how hard it is to actually get real evidence on it, and I think it's very difficult. I mean I remember a reporter once asking me – I may have told this story before on EconTalk. A reporter once asked me how many jobs did NAFTA create or save, and I said I have no idea. And he said, well, what do you mean you have no idea? I said, I don't think that's measurable. I don't think – he says, well, don't we know when factories move to Mexico? I said, sure, but we don't know how many factories get started because Americans get lower prices because of trade with Mexico. That allows them to free up income to spend on other things. There's other things. Those things expand. Those factories hire more people. 
And he said, well, what's the answer? I said, well, I told you, I don't know. He says, you're ducking the question. I said, I'm not ducking the question. You just don't like my answer to the question. He said, but you're a professional economist. And I said, you expect something of a professional economist that I don't think we can provide. So I said, I'm still comfortable arguing for free trade, even though, and let's put it aside whether NAFTA really is a free trade agreement and all the complications of actual legislation. But in general, if you ask me, do I believe that freer trade is good for a country? Uh, my answer now is is actually has changed. It's it's a little bit like your change. It's subtle. I still like trade, but the reason I like it isn't quite what I why I liked it when I was thirty years old. Say, and talking about how efficient trade was. I think that's a really bad argument now. I think many art economists use that argument, and I I concede now that trade hurts a lot of people who are competing with foreign products. But for me, the real proof of trade's benefits is the dynamism that it introduces into economy and how it helps over even generations to transform people's lives in creative and flourishing ways, not just that we are richer or we make more money. So, you know, I've changed my mind on that. Why? Because I had to confront the fact, partly what you're talking about, that there are people who are hurt by it and they're obvious. But I still have a belief in trade, but I really can't argue that that trade belief is scientific or is based on, say, detailed statistical analysis. It's not. Well, again, I would say and that- I don't think I'm you know, alone, I, by the way. That's all. I want to, I want to make that clear. <laughs> I, I agree with you for the role of the important role of history and um, what you call casual evidence and stories. And I think that it's important to remain pluralistic with regard to how we understand the economy and how we understand the world. But I do think that um, if there were micro evidence disputing some of those benefits, it would erode the consensus in support of trade. And part of the reason that, that there isn't micro evidence is because that the stories are, are true. And I think that that absence of evidence is, is supporting of the consensus. Well, let me let me take a domestic example again, which is I'll pick something I think is very contentious in the public debate, not so much among economists, but generally. And that is our uh, big box stores, discounters such as Walmart and Home Depot, are those good for America? And a lot of people believe, I think they're wrong, but a lot of people believe that the micro evidence is clearly uh, it, it clearly shows that they're bad because they they're they they're low paying jobs. The people who work in those stores. And that's their micro evidence. And we have to argue, those of us on the other side, and I'll let you state your side when, when I'm done, but we on the other side have to argue that's true, but th those people have jobs now because of big box stores. The demand for their skill level is – it's good that there's a demand for their skill level. And then you get all the benefits to people who get lower prices because these improvements in retailing have made it less costly and those, price, those costs have been passed on in form of lower prices to consumers – their standard of living is therefore higher. So, but but the people on the other side, they have lots of micro evidence. I just don't find it convincing. Yeah, I mean, I think that the micro evidence on this issue is kind of interesting. You have uh, a relatively persuasive instrumental variable uh, in the the distance of stores from Walmart, and I remember when that came out. Um, from Walmart's headquarters in uh, Arkansas, Bentonville. I remember when that came out, I think uh, Aaron Dube and uh, David Newmark, ironically, were on the same side of this issue on independent studies. But then there were people who came back to that and said, well, look, if you take this instrument 
and you look at the change in manufacturing employment, it implies some sort of effect there. And they sort of, they, it wasn't a very robust instrument. And so I'm happy to call that, I think, fairly empirically a draw or not very persuasive in either direction. I don't think that that was, that was resolved much by the empirical literature. I think what we have there is an absence of strong evidence of job losses. And so what we're left with is, is the impacts on, on productivity. And I think that one important lesson from data and from evidence is that a lot of the growth in productivity in the United States, aggregate productivity throughout the 90s, came from the retail sector. And it came from logistics and it came from companies yep. like Walmart who made retail more productive. And so I think that's another really big, important body of evidence that we can point to and say, look, uh, on Walmart, you've got uh, arguments for and against the job effect. And I can agree that there are cases being made on both sides and that the, the data and methods proposed so far haven't, haven't yet resolved this. But I think data elsewhere suggests that there are benefits that are of an order of magnitude more important, greater importance that suggest that productivity in retail is what matters. And of course, I mean, that's, that's just common sense to an economist, but we have the data there to show it. I'm going to shift gears a little bit because you raised something I think is really important that Arnold Kling has written about, which is sometimes you can change your mind and you can come to a different opinion or you can accept a study, but you don't always think about what else is implied by the acceptance of that. You just sort of say, well, that result makes sense to me or I like the study or I like the way they did that. And yet people, I think, struggle to cope with the wider implication so I want to use the minimum wage again, which we've talked about on the program recently. Uh, a lot of studies were done that showed that the minimum wage doesn't have much of an effect or any on employment. And uh, Paul Krugman, in response to your column, used that as an example of one of the things he's changed his mind on. He used to believe that labor market effects were uh, important from the minimum wage increasing. But now he's, based on the empirical evidence, he's come to be uh, to change his mind, right? So – Here's the question I have, and you can take a stab at this. Not, I, I wish I wish Paul were on the show. He's he's not. But when you, there are a lot of people who I think have that view. They've had they've quote changed their mind. The question is, what else does that imply? If you think that increases in the minimum wage don't affect labor market action and and employment, doesn't it force you to accept some other things, other changes? Wouldn't you look for other kinds of evidence then of of how firms would respond to incentives if if you're if you're going to believe the minimum wage doesn't have much of an effect. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think that that's a big missing part of the debate right now. Um, I'll talk about that in a second, but just to, to make a big sort of general point about the minimum wage, um, I, I I agree with with Paul Krugman's um, read that the that the evidence has moved him and other economists. And even though I disagree with them about the evidence, I find that heartening. I really do. I find that to be a positive sign for the field that they, you know, you, they can be moved by evidence. Even if I think the evidence is, doesn't exactly suggest the same thing they do, I have to admit that the evidence is good. The, the, the work that's been done on the minimum wage showing no effects, it's not, it's not bad. It's not bad research. It's not um, like deeply, deeply flawed. No, it's, it's creative and interesting. Exactly. And there is, there's an, there's an element of persuasiveness to it. Now, I think that there's lots of other evidence that suggests that it may be not, that, that 
that what they're looking at might not be quite right. You have individual level data uh, coming out that tracks individuals over time and it suggests that, well, these groups that we're looking at that we typically think of as being highly impacted by the minimum wage, uh, teenagers and, and fast food workers, it might not be targeted well enough. And if you track individuals over time, it, it shows a bigger impact. And you have other research suggesting that um, it, the problem is that, that the research focuses on levels instead of growth rates. And if you focus on growth rates in employment, uh, you find a much stronger obvious effect. And then you've got research about the effect on prices. You've got research um, from uh, John Moen Ross uh, showing the effect of population shifts. And it, it's a really vibrant, especially in the last five years, growing field where we're learning a lot and I just, I don't think the research stops at the cross-border uh, natural experiment estimates, but I understand why people who see that study have changed their mind. And I, I, I do think that if we fast forward five years down the road, that the field is going to be moving back towards the minimum wage having a negative effect. And that's because of this new persuasive evidence that's, that continues to flow. So it's sort of, it's, it's bad news for the workers who are going to lose their jobs because minimum wages are going up. Um, it's, it's bad news for right now, the state of the evidence or the state of the field, I think is a little bit um, not supported by, you know, the best evidence, but I think it's good news in terms of economists aren't, you know, extremely so wedded to their ideological priors that they can't be moved on the data. And, and I, I understand why the field has moved. It, it's a nuanced enough question. It's the research on, on the other side is good enough. I understand, even though I disagree, why the field has moved somewhat on this. Yeah, of course, it's a very tough um, empirical challenge, even if you believe in empirical techniques, because lower, minimum wage workers are, are a very small portion of the labor force, something around 5% or less. And so trying to tease out the impact uh, on them from this one change, when there are a lot of other things going on, is very hard to do, which means it always is possibility that you haven't measured it correctly, and the, the challenges of, of empirical work that are out there, uh, you know, become become serious. But I, I would be a little bit more optimistic than that because I don't think it's a fundamentally an unsolvable problem where one study says this, one study says the complete opposite, and we haven't moved forward. Instead, I think. Uh, the research that comes out looks at slightly different angles, slightly different adjustment mechanisms. And we know so much more about the minimum wage than we did 10 years ago. And we know about, the, if you look in this place, you see it. If you look in that place, you don't. And what sort of confounding variables you want to control for. And it, it, looking at the literature closely doesn't look like, it doesn't look like a draw where two sides just lob evidence back and forth. It, it looks like progress to me where we're getting a better understanding of, of what happens and we're using better data and better approaches all the time. So I'm, I'm optimistic that that's, that that's one area in five to 10 years, we're going to have a stronger consensus. We're going to have a better consensus. And it looks to me like the consensus is going to be that the minimum wage causes job loss. Well, we'll talk again in five or 10 years. You know, it'll be fun to see if that's true. I'm, I'd like to think uh, that's true, but, and maybe it will be. Um, so I guess uh, I guess we'll find out. But I, I do think uh, even that level of of agreement, if it does happen, is going to ignore some of the subtler impacts of the minimum wage, which inevitably are going to be missed. I think one of the tragedies of the literature in this field is the focus on employment, 
which is it's really important, no doubt about it. But there are a lot of other things that happen on the job that that are affected by the minimum wage, other margins uh, of choice that employers and employees make, uh, such as on-the-job training, uh, civility, kindness, um, and getting started that that go beyond uh, the job, whether you're employed or not. And so it's those things are, are sort of been lost in the discussion, and I think they're not unimportant. They may be extremely important. So even if the job loss was small, it could be that there are other losses occurring because people are not getting, say, on the job training that they used to get, that they would get in a competitive market if they weren't being, uh, if the price weren't being distorted by the minimum wage. But um, those are going to be very hard to tease out. Well, you do. It's not completely ignored. I mean, Barry Hirsch has a really interesting paper on the fast food industry. I think in uh, Georgia, where he did a survey and he looked at, he asked the employers what their margins of adjustment were. And so we have, we have, you know, what they did, whether they raised prices, whether they increased training, decreased training, kinds of things. I, I don't remember all the specific categories, but he, it is something that's being looked at. And I also think better data can help us answer these kinds of questions. And it, it hasn't been done yet, but. We have one of the reasons to be an optimist about empirical evidence is just the, the growing size and, uh, you know, quality of the data that we have available. And you could, you know, conceivably look at data from the Social Security Administration, data from the IRS and track workers over long periods of time and see what the long run impacts of being exposed to minimum wage when you're young are. And it, I, I, it's not something that I think is um, like fundamentally unanswerable and will never be resolved by data. I think it's more about um, the, just a matter of time till we get there and just a matter of time till economists start looking there more. Okay, well, let's, let's move from micro to macro. Um, let's talk about uh, the stimulus. I mean, you gave a great example to me. You didn't mean to, but you gave a great example of the argument over stimulus and, and fiscal policy when you said it's not like just one of these cases where people just lob bombs back and forth at each other saying, you know, different data, different studies. And I, I want to use this as a case study. I've used different pieces of it before, but I want to use this one a little bit different than I have in the past, which is that in the 1970s, in the aftermath of stagflation and the 80s, a lot of economists got very skeptical about uh, demand-side policies such as fiscal stimulus as a way to get economies out of recession. And I've read this. I think it's true. I lived through it sort of. I'm not a macroeconomist formally, but I, I kept an eye on it. I, I think a lot of economists in the field of macro said we've learned that that's not the way to fight recessions. Then we got the Great Recession of 2008, and all of a sudden – there's a quote consensus. I don't think it's quite a consensus, but let's just say it. A lot of economists thought that the stimulus was a good idea and think so now in retrospect. Um, but a lot of them don't. A lot of them think it didn't help at all or was even negative. They're, they both have empirical evidence on their side. They sometimes write as if it's open and shut, that their case is obviously right. I don't think that's true on either side. Um, I don't think we've made a lot of progress there. What are your thoughts? Macro is definitely harder. There's no doubt about that. There's less data. Uh, there's it's harder to to isolate partial equilibrium, and you're it's just you have less degrees of freedom and time series evidence is is, is tougher to prove things with. So um, I definitely agree with you there. And but I, I think that I think that if you look at 
the way the field looks at the Stimulus Act, one big one big problem with just looking at it and saying, well, everybody just thinks what they want and data doesn't matter here, is that the Stimulus Act isn't something like the minimum wage. It's not a discrete policy where you turn the fiscal lever up and it goes from a zero to a one to a two to a three. It's this, the Stimulus Act was like a dozen different things. And so to say that research hasn't told us whether the Stimulus Act was good or not or increased jobs, well, I mean, you you could write a 100-page paper on just what was in it. <laughs> there was there were uh, you know things like direct money to household. There was yeah. uh, spending cut. on green infrastructure, tax cuts, uh, cash for clunkers. So so it's not surprising that there that there wasn't one micro st- or one one good study that that said, oh, we have we have the multiplier from this stimulus. Uh, it's good. We're all good. Benefits are greater than costs. That's that. I mean, that I think that's a that's a problem of uh, looking at a broad question and looking for a very specific answer. But I do think that within the stimulus package, there are things we can learn and there are things we have learned to take a, an example where I don't think you're going to get a lot of uh, disagreement from people in the cash for clunkers program, which uh, gave people incentives to trade in their old uh, poorly fuel efficient cars for new cars. Um, I don't think many people think that that was successful. And I think that that's because of really good micro evidence that used took an instrumental variables approach and uh, showed that what happened was the demand for new cars was shifted forward in time from a very short period. So you're looking at one or two or three or four quarters in the future, all that demand is where it came from. It was a very temporary burst. And I would be very surprised if the next time a recession comes around and we're talking about fiscal stimulus, if it's going to include a program like Cash for Clunkers. And I I don't think that that's an area where there's going to be much disagreement. Yeah, I I agree with you, although I I wonder how many people um, defended it at the time. I maybe put something up about this when... uh when we post this episode, but uh, it, it, it was a tragic episode for me. It reminded me of the Great Depression when when um, we slaughtered pigs uh, to help uh, farmers. We slaughtered pigs and then didn't serve them as food to anybody. We just killed pigs as a way to raise the price of pork and help farmers. Uh, this struck me as kind of the same kind of intellectual mistake um, just a total failure to misunderstand how where prosperity comes from, and it doesn't come from destroying things; it comes from creating things. Um, but I, I agree with you. I think I think most economists at the time, or a lot of economists, thought it probably wouldn't work. And there have been some probably pretty respectable and and studies that convince people that indeed it it did not work. So. Uh, and I mean, that's, that's complicated, not obvious econometric stuff. It wasn't just looking at the aggregate data. It was using instrumental variable approaches and it was specifically identifying the shift forward in time of demand and where it came from. So I, I, I count that one as a, as a victory for empiricism. Yeah, I hope, I hope you're right. Uh, again, I think a lot of these ideas come back and uh, they have a political appeal. And I think one of the points I want to make here that I think is hard to remember, I have trouble remembering, is that people do say things publicly sometimes for various reasons other than just to determine what they think is true. Uh, so when economists, when the stim- you know, your point about the complexity of the stimulus is an excellent point, a lot of people just said, well, it's, uh, it's $780 billion, and that's just, that's all you need to know. But of course, that's 
shouldn't be the case. It should be you need to know something about what it's spent on and how its time period is pushed out and all that. And a lot of people, and some of them very prominent Nobel laureate types or would-be laureate, Nobel laureates, people with with strong academic reputations said at the time, oh, this is great. It's just the right size. Now, I'm willing to concede that that's a remark that they made that was not a, a thoughtful academic remark, but rather a intended for the public remark that they would not have maybe made that remark in a seminar. So I think I think you do have to distinguish between those two. And maybe it's a little bit of a cheap shot on my part to to point out that people said things that turn out to be, quote, wrong, even when uh, it, because because they were talking for a different audience. I think I don't think that's the best idea to talk to different audiences, but I understand it. Yeah, I, I think that's right. I think that uh, the people are going to say it a different way and they would probably be a little bit more cautious in a, in a different venue. And, and I think that, you know, one of the one of the things with the multiplier is that uh, it it wasn't a very, like you said, it was sort of settled in the seventies. And so this wasn't something like, you know, when the minimum wage comes up, people can look at the very recent new evidence that's been highly active and talk about what research applies, what research is the best. And, but the stimulus is something that sort of, I think uh, Valerie Ramey called it, a, it was a backwater until, yeah. until the two thousands, until the recession. So I think one of the reasons that you had such a wide range of multipliers is that one, people weren't looking at it very closely for a while. And two, you have different multipliers. You have full employment multipliers and you have recession multipliers. And just focusing on the time series evidence, uh, it's entirely possible that there's not enough degrees of freedom there to actually identify that. So it's an area where I think that there's there's good work going on. And if you look at papers that are written about fiscal stimulus and about the multipliers, there's been an explosion in interest here. And I think there's some new interesting approaches that are that are enlightening and that we're learning a lot about it. And I, I'm hopeful that we'll see that that multiplier range narrow. But I think part of the problem is that it just wasn't that popular of a topic for a long time. Yeah, and to come back to the underlying issue here about ideology versus science um maybe i haven't stressed enough and relying on people to go back to past episodes i apologize but you know there is always an out for one's own ideology or even just prior beliefs right the world's complicated so okay the stimulus didn't work this time well that's because this was a financial crisis or that's because this was a supply shock crisis or that's because you didn't spend it the right way and there's always uh it's very difficult to accumulate evidence. There's, there's lots of evidence, but it's hard for it to become cumulative. As uh, I heard Robert Skidelsky say once, uh, Keynes' biographer, he said economics is not a progressive science. And by that he meant we don't – our knowledge doesn't build on a finding and add to it the way it does in, say, physics. Now, he maybe is being too pessimistic there, but in macro, it's, it feels a lot, way a lot. Well, I think that there's, there's obviously truth to that, that macro is harder um, and that you have ideas that become popular and generate intense research projects that are then tossed away largely. For, for example, in macro, the idea that you could explain recessions without money was a big research project in the 80s. Yeah. And a lot of people focused on it and a literature built up and then it was revealed to not be a very valid way to describe most recessions. And so we don't still build upon that mountain, although it's important to know uh, and I think that the, that the sort of legacy of that that 
research, even though the, the main theory was proven false. It's a, it's a useful legacy because now when someone, when someone who's not an economist says, well, the real cause of recessions are uh, just productivity shocks, they word it in a non-economist way, of course, but we can point to that literature. And so even, even from failed projects, I think we, we learn stuff and we do, we do accumulate knowledge and macro in terms of ideas that we rule out and in terms of theories that are not very credible. Yeah, maybe. I'm not sure. Um, yeah, I think a lot of ideas do come back for a variety of reasons, either because circumstances have changed or because it's convenient to believe them. I think that's the biggest challenge we have as economists. You know, an unspoken issue here is that as economists, we like things that make us important. And it's so it's very tempting. One thing I found interesting in response to your piece, let's get back to that, is that you know a lot of people said, of course we change our minds all the time. Uh, so that's comforting, right? Like you said, it makes us feel good that we have a real science. Um, people change their mind in history too. There's trends in history about what caused what, what, what caused World War One. Sometimes it's new evidence. Some a telegram will be uncovered in the in the archives, or some correspondence between diplomats that was hit, that was sealed or that was lost, uh, and that causes people to change their mind. So evidence. I want to make it very clear here when I argue against. Uh, uh, empirical work. I, I'm not arguing against facts. I'm not arguing against evidence. Facts matter. Evidence matters. I'm just a little bit skeptical, or actually a lot skeptical, about the power of sophisticated econometric techniques to cut through complexity and to hold everything else constant. And uh, I think too often, as economists, we consume and agree with things that conform to the way we want the world to work rather than the way it actually does work, because it's hard to figure out how it actually does work. There, and there's certainly truth to that. And uh, I think that the lesson, I, I, I don't think we probably disagree that much about how much we can learn from empiricism, but I, I think that lesson has to be extended to ideology, to facts, to stories. And in those areas, we have an e even less of an ability to be confident that our biases aren't at work because at least when it comes down to empiricism, we have it all there on the table. I can point to the study you and I can talk about the assumptions behind the study. We can debate about where it fails, where it succeeds. But if what you have is a story, that's much harder. If what you have is just, well, I have an accumulate, accumulated lifetime of facts and experience, <laughs> that's even harder to argue about. And so I think in those areas, we're going to see our biases operating more strongly because that's fundamental human nature. So I, I agree with you that economics needs humility. I think Probably economics needs more humility and economists need more humility, but stories and simple facts and our own, you know, personal narratives about the world need even more humility. Oh, that's a fantastic point. Um, I'd like, I'd like you to expand on that uh, because I do think in preparing for this episode, when I thought about things that I've changed my mind on in economics, um, and I have, I'll just pick one, uh, how well do markets work? I think they're a lot messier than I thought, say, uh, 25, 30 years ago when I was younger. And part of it's the examples we talked about earlier. I think the the people who get left behind, uh, who, who, who don't benefit from some economic change, I don't think the markets work as smoothly as I thought they did. They don't work as well as they do on my blackboard. So I've become what you might call a little more Austrian uh, about how markets work. They're, they're messier. Uh, I don't like the um, the way I talked about markets 25 years ago. And so why did that happen? 
know, why did I change? Why did I become more willing to admit that there are inefficiencies? I still don't think that necessarily government can fix them. So I didn't change that ideology. But the way I think about them and the way I apply them in the real world has, has definitely changed. So why did that happen? And I, the answer is I don't really know, right? Part of it was hanging out at George Mason for nine years. That was, you know, a very influential set of people there who affected me. And, and plus, that's where I worked. Maybe that had an effect on me. But it's hard to point to those things. So now I've got a nice, firm set of new views about how markets work. And um, you're right. You can't really argue with me, can you? It's a fascinating point. <laughs> Yeah, and I think that the task for economists is to sort of let go of that and step back and assemble our thoughts and evidence. Why do we actually think this? And uh, for myself personally, I mean, I I, I I agree with your basic characterization, and I'm you know I'm, I'm a moderately uh, libertarian leaning, uh, but. I can step back and I can point to sort of the studies and the veins of literature uh, that have that have sort of influenced me in this regard. And you know, I think w one really interesting area, just take one of a you know a lot of pieces of evidence you can do about labor markets, is the research on compensating variation, where um, if a job is less pleasant in some regard or more dangerous in some regard, that wages tend to make up for that. And I think that there's a long, broad literature on this. And I think that that's the kind of thing where you see it, it sinks into your mind. It helps create a, a picture of markets as operating relatively effectively. But you sort of forget that that evidence is driving that image you have of markets. And I think that there are lots of studies along the way. And I think the way our ideologies form as economists is we, we see studies and they confirm uh, what we think, and we see studies and they reject what we think, and we sort of forget those studies, but we retain the images of markets. But I think it's really important to go back. I think it's really important to remind ourselves why why do we think markets work as well as they do? Or not. What specific, yeah, <laughs> and, and why do we think that they don't when they don't? Or, and I no, think we need yeah. to... I'm just, I make the people on the other side of the fence for me who think they don't work that well. You know, why, why do, why do they and I disagree so much? What's the difference? What's the source of that difference? Exactly. And so it's important for us to be able to talk about that evidence. And I think that's really how, you know, you change people's minds. And uh, unfortunately the, the economic thought industry, the content industry is driven far too much about persuading our own side and so we don't really need to go back to those fundamental questions. We don't really need to dig through our memories and through our minds and look at our assumptions about how well markets work and pinpoint the evidence and the data that's convinced us of this. Because we're talking to people who already agree with those fundamentals. So we just argue and try to convince our allies on the margins. But I think if you really want to reach across the aisle and you really want to you know, convince people who don't agree with you, you've got to be, you've got to be better at, at digging deep into the evidence that that motivates this image that we have of markets. And those, those things need to be closer to mind. And I, and I just want to make clear when I say ideology, it's, it's not really the best word or bias. I, those, what I really think talking about is a word, it, some of it is ideology, obviously a, a philosophy, a philosophy of how the, of, of the right role for government say, or the private sector or the, the civil society. But I'm really writ large. I'm talking about what we would call a worldview the lens that we use to organize our thinking about the complexity of reality. And when something comes along that doesn't fit into that, uh, 
I think what's important to remember is how easy it is just to say, oh, well, that's, uh, 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 you know, just to make a noise, just not see it, not look at it. Uh, example I like to use for against my view is that, and I've talked about this before, is Wikipedia. When I was younger, I would never believe Wikipedia was possible. A bunch of volunteers giving up their time for no real reward. It's a waste of time for them. It's, you know, why would they do that? And I think many economists, I would, wouldn't have been alone, would have said, Wikipedia, if it happens at all, will be awful and it won't be useful. It'll be shoddy. Of course, it's not, there's no money involved. There's no reward. There's no incentive. It's not even fame. It's, you know, the authors are often anonymous unless you start to peel back the layers. And even then, sometimes they have nicknames. So what's the, how could this, it just won't happen. But it did happen. So I think a thoughtful person, you have to, you have to realize that your world, the world's a little more complicated than you thought. So I think those are very, very powerful and useful things to realize. And uh, I think they accumulate over time. If you see enough of them, you start to realize that maybe your lens needs adjustment or maybe you need a different lens. You can actually be sufficiently empathetic to the other side that you realize that their lens is pretty good. Maybe you need to change your lens. And that's no fun. Um, You know, part of what I'm arguing for here is how hard it is to do that. And for any human being... And certainly for a professional economist or an academic who's got a reputation and a track record of past pronouncements, I think it's very hard for us to do that. And so we're a little bit rigid, a lot rigid. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think I I don't think um, excessive skepticism of uh, empiricism helps us very much in that. I think it's it's more we need more skepticism of our basic lenses then we need skepticism of empiricism per se. I would say that for most people, that's, that's the direction they need more work on. But my claim is, is that we use that empirical sophistication as a way to dress up our lens to the outside world to make us look a little more, a little less naked, <laughs> right? Uh, as you said, it's very hard to argue about these this long history of personal experience and narratives. I said, well, that's not the real reason I believe these things. The real reason is I have evidence. I have science behind me. And so what we have is dueling uh, kind of metric studies. But that's not really what's going on. That That's really, I think, gets at what I'm trying to suggest is a lot of the disagreement in economics over – public policy issues and uh, how understanding how what causes recessions, what causes recoveries is that we have these sort of vague ideas that come from our personal experience. They're not made up. They're not biases. They just are convenient for us. They're, they're the accumulation of lots of stuff. Some of it evidence, some of it fact, some of it comforting because of the way we want the world to work. And then we dress it up with these studies. That's my real, I think, a critique I, I, I want to stand behind. And by the way, some people accuse me of moving the goalposts. And I, I'm happy to concede I've moved the goalposts on what I really believe in this. I haven't figured it out. I think it's an incredibly complicated issue of how our worldviews come to be what they are. So I'm not, I'm totally happy admitting I, I may have overstated a position in the past. But I think that kind of sums it up. What do you think of that? Yeah, that's great. I think you're changing your mind uh, <laughs> as, as, as you see evidence. Well, Welcome to the list of data points, Russ. You're going to be the next next data point next time I write about this. But I think in general, we've got macro evidence and micro evidence about this. And I think the macro evidence is that the economics field evolves and uh, our, our understanding of issues evolves. And it doesn't just go back and forth, but it gets better. 
and closer to truth. And we continually rule out bad ideas. And we have a massive, massive stock of bad policy ideas that are extremely popular, but most economists rule out from that evidence. And I, I think it's too easy to focus on the things that economists disagree about. But if you think about the things economists agree about, the things that we generally rule out that, uh, you know, not economists love, it's it's a pretty big stock of of, of policies and ideas about the, the way that the world works. So I think that's the macro evidence that, 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 that empirical evidence matters and should matter. And the micro evidence I think is, is the illustrations I have and the examples that I've gotten from people responding about people who do change their mind on an issue that they really cared about based on empirical evidence. And I think that give, give I think some we probably, examples we, of that. Sure. So, um, I already talked about myself and I can talk about my, my boss, Mark Zandi is the, the chief economist at Moody's analytics, uh, has been persuaded by recent evidence that shows recessions might tend to have long run impacts. And that's something that was, you know, not a very popular idea among economists and it's starting to gain some steam just, just based on, you know, better modeling and better data sets and nothing really super complicated. If you, you can, you can read that paper. It's, it's pretty accessible. It's just, you know, we look at a, a bunch of countries over a long period of time and we have a better measure of pre and post trends and it looks like something might be happening there. So that's one example. And I think in response to the Great Recession, there have been some high profile people who have changed their minds. You have uh, uh, Nariana Kotrilakota, who is a, a president of the Federal Reserve Bank in Minneapolis. He, at the beginning of the recession, uh, was very skeptical of demand-side explanations. He thought demand-side factors were very short-lived and temporary. And as a result, he was what you would call a, a monetary policy hawk. He didn't think that we needed to continue easing and to uh, continue uh, with uh, quantitative easing, easing programs and, and can continue being accommodative in monetary policy because he thought inflation was right around the corner because demand side policies can't matter that much. So this must be supply side, in which case we're going to see inflation very soon from, from all this easing that we're doing. And it didn't show up. It just didn't show up. And that fact combined with, you know, research he cites from people that worked for him at, at, at Minneapolis that were doing micro studies of housing lock and other structural factors, and they just weren't finding it. He sort of changed his mind and he realized, you know, this, this is a demand side thing and we don't have to worry about inflation that much. And I mean, he's not the only one it's, it's easy to, to look and find people who haven't changed their mind about the recession. But I mean, e even Arthur Laffer uh, of the Laffer curve fame su supply side economists, he thought inflation was right around the corner and he thought it was going to be big and he was very loud and prominent about this. And when it didn't show up, he didn't just say, I was wrong, but inflation's coming next, or I was wrong, but yada, 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 I'm still right. He said, I was wrong, and that means my model's wrong, and I have rethinking to do. And so I think we need to look at these people, and you know, they're, they prove that it can be done. I mean, obviously, we have deep inherent biases that make this sort of thing hard for people, but it can be done, and the lesson isn't to distrust empirical evidence because people are often not using it properly. But the lesson is to uh, be more skeptical of our ideological priors and try to use empirical evidence better because it really can be persuasive and it really can change your mind. And, I, and I've talked about that inflation monetary issue, although that's a little bit, that's a really 
crude natural experiment, right? Massive increase of the Fed's balance sheet, no inflation. Um, people who predicted it will still stand by it saying, oh, we paid interest on reserves. The money didn't get into the economy. But I, I concede it's more complicated than that. But that's just – again, that's from experience, right? I mean I think we do learn from experience and I, there are cases where I think people – Failed to learn from experience, even though the evidence to me seemed pretty clear on one side or another, um, you know, that something did or didn't work. I've used the example of the post-World War II drawdown in U.S. government spending that that didn't – a lot of Keynesians afterwards found a way to reconcile that with their – that the recession didn't happen. They found a way to reconcile it. But I, I want to go back to your to your column for a minute because you have some examples in there where people found interesting things that caused them to change their mind. And I don't want to – suggest that people are so rigid that they never learn anything from empirical work, even sophisticated empirical work. Of course, you can come along and find a study that, that shows something interesting and you change your mind. The question is, that why does everybody change their mind? You know, it's, uh, Let me give a medical example. We're going to be talking about it soon in, a, in an upcoming episode. And we talked about a little bit with a past episode on um, uh, the challenge of, of epidemiology and of, say, measuring the effects of screening. So for a long time, it was encouraged for men to get uh, a PSA exam to find out if they have prostate cancer. Well, they finally did a, some, a serious clinical trial, and they found out that probably it doesn't help you at all. And a lot of doctors, again, use your own. This is not, I'm not giving out medical advice here. It's not what this program is. But a lot of doctors have clearly decided, and talk to your own doctor, but a lot of doctors have clearly decided that's not a good policy. You shouldn't get a PSA exam. And they based it on the evidence of the clinical trial. They have a real – and it's overwhelming to so many doctors. Again, there's some who still do it, but I'm sure. But a lot of doctors have said, oh, the evidence doesn't, doesn't, doesn't hold up. I think that's the kind of thing that does not happen so much in economics. Yes, an interesting study will come along about some impact and you'll go, oh, that's interesting. That, may, that seems right. And maybe it changes your mind. But things that fundamentally change your mind about something dramatic – that's close to your heart, that's a lot harder. Obviously, it's hard in every field. It's hard in physics. I don't mean to suggest that economics is the only field that has this problem. But I think in economics, it's particularly challenging because we don't, the best we can get usually is a natural experiment. And natural experiments are, and by natural, I mean it's not a lab. It's not, not everything is actually held constant. The control isn't working as well as it would in an actual lab experiment. So you can always find ways to decide that maybe it isn't representative of what would have happened in a real experiment. And I, I think that's that's our problem, uh, that un inherent complexity. Well, I don't think that the other sciences are um, are are that much better off than economics, actually. I, I think that there's, there's, and there's evidence of this too, it goes beyond just the, the, the prostate screening example that you gave. So um, David Cutler had a recent study. Uh, you know, it's a well-known fact. Um, well-known facts because of uh, very careful uh, multivariate regression empirical studies that healthcare spending varies greatly across the U.S. Uh, even after you control for demographics and other factors. And what David Cutler's work showed is, is that one of the driving forces behind these differences in costs, which also don't, they're, they're costs that don't lead to better health conditions. So it's, it's waste. It's, it, it's money being spent on, on conditions that don't matter. For example, it's like you said, those screenings uh, suggest that they, they shouldn't be done, but you know, some doctors are still doing it. And in aggregate, 
those kinds of things really end up to a, a huge uh, economically important driver of, of cost differences. Uh, Cutler's work suggests that um, if, uh, if physicians followed professional guidelines in end of life care, the Medicare expenditures would be something like a third less. Hmm. So a third of the excess costs in end of life care is driven by physicians who aren't following simple best practice guidelines. And so I think that that's one example where medical care is is showing the same sorts of things that, that you say are a problem in economics. And um, it, the life sciences in general, there's a recent NBER study that looked at what happens when a, when a prominent researcher in the life sciences dies. And they looked at uh, the various subfields within the life sciences. And what they found was that when a prominent researcher in a subfield dies, you have... Uh, what looks like an, an improvement in research. So what happens is his co-authors, his, his or her co-authors have, have less, uh, less publications, less citations, and it brings new entrants into that field. And uh, their work tends to not to, to cite the influential authors work less. And, and it, it basically just confirms that um, uh, the, the well-known quote that science advances one funeral at a time. And this is the life sciences. You know, they have, they have actual experiments there. Um, their, their, uh, empirical credibility is a hundred years ahead of economics and it's still a problem there. So I, I don't think that, I don't think that the bias, the bias of scientists and the culture of science is only a problem for economics, but I think importantly that, um, all these fields make progress nonetheless, because that's the nature of science that, that we do manage to, you know, overcome these things and still learn and still progress. My guest today has been um, Adam Ozebeck. And Adam, I want to thank you for letting me talk a little bit more than I would have liked to in this episode. This is sort of my, this is my uh, therapeutic couch uh, to, to work through these ideas. You and other guests on these topics, uh, I'm still figuring out what I think about it. And I appreciate your helping me get there. Sure, Russ. Thanks for having me. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.